This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where people from our firm share their insights on developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. How we watch video is changing fundamentally as new online video streaming services put pressure on traditional television providers. This has investors, analysts asking, is this the end of TV as we know it? Brett Feldman and Drew Borst, equity analysts in global investment research at Goldman Sachs, are here to give us their take on the new TV landscape. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Great to be here. Thank you. Brett, Drew, perhaps the hottest issue in the media and telecom space right now is cord cutting. For some of the listeners who might not be as familiar with this concept, explain what cord cutting is and why it's a significant topic right now. So at the most basic level, cord cutting is when consumers cancel their pay TV subscription. That could either be with a cable company, which is how the phrase cord cutting came to be, or the satellite company in order to exclusively watch video through streaming services. But cord cutting is really only one thing that's happening with regards to how the pay TV ecosystem is changing. There's a few other cord words we use. There are also people called cord shavers. So those are people who are downsizing to smaller video packages primarily to save money. So they're not actually canceling pay TV, but they're consuming less of it or they're paying less for it. And there's a group of consumers we call cord nevers, and these are generally younger consumers or millennials who don't cut the cord. They never actually become pay TV customers to begin with. So when they graduate college and move out of the home, they exclusively consume streaming services. There's a subset of the cord nevers who are called cord cheaters, and these are people who are, in fact, watching a lot of pay TV. With their friends' passwords? With their friends' passwords, or usually their parents' passwords. Yeah. Um, some of the larger pay TV companies call this account packing, which is to say a lot of people are using the same password. I got it. So it's not new, obviously. It's been going on for a while, cord cutting, cord shaving, cord never. But it seems like the markets noticed, and there was a big sell-off, some stocks tied to paid TV and content. So why did the investor focus increase so intensely just in the past several months? Yeah, I think there are really two reasons for that. The first reason is that some of the entertainment companies talked about missing forward guidance because they were seeing an acceleration or a more significant decline in the subscriber counts. And then the second thing is, when you did the bottoms up of total number of people subscribing to pay television as reported by cable, satellite, and telco providers, what you saw in the second quarter was a significant acceleration in, in that decline. So you kind of got warning signals from both the entertainment and the content companies saying- they're seeing it on their bottom line or their top line, and then you're seeing it also just in the data analysis. That's right. But to your earlier point, it's totally not new. You know, In fact, investors have been talking about this to one degree or another for the better part of probably two years. But when you looked at the numbers, they were just small. It wasn't very significant. In fact, since 2012, the amount of cord cutting or the decline in paid TV subscribers, it's about 1% over that time frame. But the second quarter is the one that kind of got people's attention and said, wow, are we at an inflection point? And is something changing here? To put more precise numbers around it, it was the, there were about 600,000 people that disconnected their paid TV service. In one quarter. And just in that one quarter. And it was about one and a half, two times worse than the level we had seen in the year ago so there, it was a, a definitely, it was the worst quarter on record. That's probably less than 1% of the overall people who pay for TV today, but still 
you're starting to see declines and, and may signal the onset of a trend. That's right. So what's really at the heart of this whole debate? Is this just changing consumer preferences, technological disruption, a little bit of both? Yeah, I would say it's a combination of a couple things. On the technological side, we're now at a point where just about everybody has a smartphone and a lot of people have tablets. So you now have devices in your hand or in your pocket that allow you to watch streaming media anywhere you are. And we're also at a point where all the national wireless carriers have broadband wireless networks called 4G networks, and most homes have a broadband connection. So over the last few years, you've gotten to the point where you're almost always covered by broadband, and you almost always have a device where you can use a broadband network to consume video. And because of that, we've seen an increase in the number of streaming services that are available. But there's another piece of it as well, which is economics, which is that a traditional pay TV package from a satellite or a cable company is very expensive. And that's because the large bundle of programming that they're selling you costs a lot for them to buy from the content generators. But if you decide to go streaming, you can be more narrow in your content selections. And so some people have found that they can actually save money by streaming instead of buying the big TV bundle. So how are they, the content providers, the entertainment companies, adjusting to this new landscape? There's a number of different strategies that they're using, and it's, you know, every company's got a slightly different view on how they're, they're moving forward. And, and the strategy that they take, in many cases, has a lot to do with the assets that they have within their portfolio. A lot of the entertainment companies are vertically integrated, so they make programs, television shows at a, at a TV studio. They may have a TV channel, whether it's a broadcast or cable channel that's trying to aggregate audiences and sell advertising against it. They may have a premium cable network. And so there's a number of different business models, a number of different assets, but you do see different attempts to tap into this trend. But I think the challenge is that the bundled pay TV service and that business model has been incredibly lucrative to them. This is a business that's characterized with very high margins, anywhere from 30% EBITDA margins to maybe as high as 60% EBITDA margins. It's still a business that is growing. Obviously, the subs aren't growing, but the price per sub on a wholesale basis is continued to grow because that's built into their contracts. The advertising part has been slowing, but it is still eking out a little bit of growth, it's sort of flat to slightly up. Advertising and within the broadcast TV kind of. I was thinking framework. within the total ecosystem of broadcast plus broadcast, the cable. apps, cable, everything. Yeah. yeah. Okay. This creates quite a challenge for them. So they don't want to break away completely, make a clean break from this bundled service that has all these advantages. But at the same time, they see that the consumer is spending more and more time with these devices online over the top. So in some cases, They've been licensing some of their television programs to streaming services that are owned by third parties. In some cases, they're creating their own streaming services to be delivered direct to the consumer for a discrete fee. And I assume those last two categories, streaming your own content or licensing it to a third party, are much less lucrative than their original model? Not always. Let's talk about the direct-to-consumer model. There's a handful of examples of these. But the price points that the companies have been establishing in general are actually premiums to what they're able to get. So there is some logic to what they're doing. And so they're saying, look, the only way I'm going to leave the confines of this pay TV bundled system is if I can actually do materially better. And in some cases, it could be two, three times the pricing. And If you've got really premium content that people need to watch or right. want to watch. 
the licensing to third-party streaming services is probably the area where there's been a lot more controversy because the big media companies originally were embracing those services and licensing at a certain fixed fee. But what I think has ended up happening is that some of these companies have grown more quickly than expected in a shorter period of time. You know, in some cases, they've doubled their subscriber base in a matter of two, three years. And again, the fees that those streaming services are paying back to the media companies, they're fixed. So they aren't hinged to that subscriber growth. We're now looking back at these deals and saying, see what's happening here, how they're potentially impacting the ecosystem, how they're potentially impacting pay TV subscribers and the cord cutting behavior we talked about, and maybe not charging enough. The good news is that in most cases, the contracts are pretty short term. Those contracts will eventually come up for renewal. And so there's potentially an opportunity to correct that. How are advertisers responding to what's increasingly a very balkanized landscape? I mean, if you're trying to sell a car or market a beverage or a new food product or insurance, how are you responding to this, the choices that you have or the choices that consumers have? It's an increasingly challenging space for the marketers. Almost every major marketer, the bulk of their budget has gone to television. It's probably 40, 50, 60% of their total advertising budget has, has been dedicated to TV. And, and TV has generally served them well in efficiently reaching a mass audience. But what's changed over the past two years is that we're now seeing a greater decline in the audience levels across the whole universe. Some channels more. But we're talking about high single to low double-digit declines in viewership. Now, as you might suspect, the content companies, the media companies, are trying to offset declining viewership by charging more per viewer for the advertising so they can sustain their own advertising growth. So the marketers, when confronted with this, are now starting to shift their attention more aggressively to alternatives. And there's a number of large Internet-based companies that are offering audience reach and a scaled basis. And, and metrics. And because, metrics. Yeah. I mean, talk about that for a second, because when you were buying big ads on broadcast TV, you, had, you know people how many people are watching the show, but these days you don't know if people are watching your ad. No, that's exactly right. You know, the internet provides a, a significant advantage over TV and being able to target very narrow niches. So if, if you're trying if, to sell diapers, you know, you can go online and find women uh, who just had a baby in the past six months, who have household income of you know, 100K or more, you can find those people at a very low CPM. And so they are moving in that direction. And TV is, just doesn't have that technology and that capability today. And they need to come up with some type of solution, but it's not that easy. So let's talk about some of the advantages that TV providers, television providers have over the new entrants. What might help them maintain or even expand their market share given what's going on today? This actually gets back to something we were just talking about, which is the challenges that a content provider has going direct to consumer. So the big operators in the pay TV space, the cable companies and the satellite companies are huge distributors. That's what their model is. So they already have tens of millions of customer relationships. And so they get all the cost advantages of serving a large customer base. And the history of the model in pay TV has been that the pay TV companies distribute, bill, do customer service, and the media companies just create great content and turn it over to them. So if these big media companies decide that they would like to go direct to consumer, they have to create billing departments and marketing departments and customer service departments. Some of them have such great content and such interest in the product that they can justify the investment. But the average provider of programming probably wants to work with a distributor 
And it might simply be that the distribution model evolves. Instead of taking their content and packing it into a huge bundle of channels that come into your receiver, they may ultimately work with these companies and say, perhaps we can stream through your network and you can help us distribute our product on a streaming basis. That has only happened at a very nascent level. But really, the, the huge scale and the huge base of existing customers is one of the biggest advantages. And of course, the pay TV companies own the infrastructure. Uh, there's only a couple different ways you can actually get video content to a consumer. You're going to go through a network. You're either going to go through a, a pay TV cable network, you're going to go through a satellite TV network, or maybe you're going to go through a broadband connection. It seems like a key advantage right now is that a lot of these sports networks and leagues have long-term agreements with the paid TV providers. How are TV providers using that to sort of protect their franchise? Most of the major sports contracts have recently been renewed, and in many cases they stretch out for a decade or longer. And so they, there's not probably likely to be a lot of movement between now and call it maybe 2020, 2021, in terms of how sports video is distributed. That's one of the brighter spots if you own some of these contracts. But what the major networks are doing with their sports rights is that they do recognize that there's an incredible amount of demand for this content. And you know, not everybody can be at home in front of the, their television set when the World Series is on. They might be traveling for work and they have a tablet or they have their mobile phone. And so a lot of these companies have done a great job of getting that content distributed through to those other devices. If we're talking about a cable network, you still have to be a subscriber to a pay service. Assuming oh. you're not a core cheater. That's right. That's right. <laughs> exactly right. So the bigger concept here is there is increasing value in, in the live programming. The viewership numbers are holding up a lot better. In some cases, they may still be growing. The pricing for advertising spots within that programming as a consequence also continues to move up because the demand is there. You know, another great thing about live sports programming is roughly 98% of it is watched live. When you see scripted dramas and comedies, more than half of the audience is going to record that on a DVR and then fast forward through the commercials, and that's a negative for the advertising. So that doesn't happen with sports. But it's not just sports, though. A lot of the broadcast networks try to do other live events, live musical events and live specials. The award shows are garnering bigger audiences, and those are live events. And so the TV channels are doing what they can to sort of to create new excitement live. around a particular event. And, then, and that's why they've actually partnered with some people who help get that audience engaged. This actually speaks to another advantage that the traditional pay TV companies have. We've become so accustomed to watching streaming content that a lot of consumers aren't aware of how difficult technologically it is to send a live stream to a consumer over the internet, especially if it's to a mobile device. And we have seen uh, some streaming services launch over the last year that unlike the traditional ones, which are mostly a library of content you can watch whenever you want, they're actually attempting to send you live sporting events, live TV events, and they're crashing quite often. And so the streaming infrastructure is great if you want to watch something that was aired yesterday or a movie coming off a library. But there's still some meaningful technological barriers at getting live content to an unknown number of consumers through an internet connection. You both talked a lot about mobile, about mobile phones, and people are getting much more accustomed to watching programming, whether it's live or whether it's something that they can pull up on demand on their phones. How is that going to play out over time? I mean, what's the impact of mobile on this landscape? I'd say it's an interesting question that the industry is grappling with. 
it's quite clear that a lot of video is being consumed on mobile devices. But some of that is actually happening in your house. And so trying to get your content to someone who's sitting on their sofa through a Wi-Fi connection is very different than trying to get it to somebody who may actually be viewing that content over a mobile network where the cost structure and the physics of delivering that signal are very different. But it's also really driving towards more convergence. And we've been using that phrase to talk about the telecom industry for a long time. Initially, that meant companies that owned wireless networks might also own a wireline network. But now what we're saying is that a service needs to be able to move across multiple networks in a way that's seamless to the end user. And as a result of that, some of the companies that have the most scale in the video market, like the cable companies, are realizing they may need to have a wireless strategy because so much of the content that they are accustomed to distributing is going to be viewed on a mobile device. And it's unclear what they're going to do. Yeah, they're all trying to create more hotspots, more places you can watch, so you're tied to them and not to the mobile network. Well, some of the largest cable companies a couple of years ago signed an agreement with a major wireless provider that would give them the right to resell that wireless provider's network under their own brand to their own customers if they wanted to. And that agreement has kind of been sitting there dormant for a while, but media reports have come out recently that we might see some of those cable companies begin to take advantage of it, and investors are very curious to see what they're going to do. Is it simply going to be a way for them to fill in the gaps between their Wi-Fi hotspots, which would be sort of a very small move into improving their broadband service? Or could they potentially be interested in taking advantage of that mobile infrastructure to launch a whole new type of video product that they don't have today? So how do you see this playing out over the next couple of years? Some of these trends have been going on forever. But as you see this play out, are you an optimist around pay TV in the long run? Who do you think the winners and losers are here? Yeah, I think on the, the content side, the entertainment side, our expectation is that you'll probably have about somewhere between 1% and 2% annual declines in paid television over the next several years. But on the subscriber side, you yeah, mean? Yeah, on okay. the subscriber side. And the reason to think that it'll remain somewhat modest and kind of a, a uniform decline, I think it has a lot to do with sort of the generational aspects of the pay TV subscriber base. What I mean by that is you have young people graduating university and sort of matriculating into adulthood. What we're starting to see is that cohort, that young 20-something cohort, is just not subscribing to pay TV at the same propensity as prior generations before them. Among eight older age cohorts, they're still really enjoying their pay TV. They're still watching a lot of television. The average consumer's still watching five hours of television per day. Is that number more or less steady, or has that been declining? It has been steady, and what's interesting is it, it does shift, as you might suspect, between five, ten years ago, that five hours was almost exclusively live viewing, but the five hours is now sort of shifted from less live to more DVR, v, yeah, DVR VOD, and, and those types of services. But people, I think, are still getting a great deal of utility out of their television service as a consequence. It's really fascinating when you take that five hours of consumption and the average cable ARPU is roughly $80 per month. And if you kind of run the math of how, much are, pe yeah, how much are people paying per hour of, it's of consumption? Yeah, yeah, it's 30 cents. It's roughly 25, 30 cents. And when you put it in that context, it certainly seems cheap. But I, you know, we are going to probably go into this world where the younger cohort is sort of comfortable not having the service. The other thing I think that you'll start to see happen, uh, and it's happening already today, is that the pay TV operators are going to continue to offer a wider variety of options. This is a business that for most of its history, it was one size fits all. You know, here's 
400 channels and it's 80 bucks, kind of take it or leave it. And you're already starting to see the, the traditional paid TV operators experiment more aggressively with more affordable options. All right, well, here's a $40 you know, option. It only has 40 channels. But in the 40 channels, there's some good stuff in there potentially. It might include a sports network. It's going to have some of the broadcast networks and it'll have a, a variety of maybe higher quality basic cable networks. And so we're probably going to move into this world where the consumer has more choice and price points to choose from. So on the distribution side, the cable companies, the content providers and consumers, how do you see the winners and losers playing out? It's obviously a great game for us to predict who the winners and losers are going to be. And because we're still early in this evolution, calling out the names can be hard. But what we can do is we can say, well, what are the characteristics that a winner might have? And if you believe that the reason pay TV is being disrupted is because more consumers are streaming their content through broadband connections, then our guess would be that if you have a great broadband network, you're probably positioned as a winner. And so you look at the cable companies and you say they, generally speaking, have a lead over their competitors in terms of delivering a great broadband experience and in some ways partially mobilizing that through a rich network of Wi-Fi hotspots in their communities. Wireless operators also have a form of a broadband connection, although you could argue it's not as scarce, meaning if you're a consumer, you probably have one or two choices in your home for who's going to give you fixed broadband. You might have four or five. But you might have four or five on the mobile space. And so it's kind of interesting to us that investors have expressed a lot of concern about the positioning of cable companies as their traditional pay TV model appears under threat, and yet they're the ones who are also typically delivering the best broadband connection to the consumer. And so our sense is that it's very hard for their infrastructure to be avoided. And so it would seem that they're going to find a way to evolve their business model to make sure that they continue to generate the return on those assets that you would think they should be able to get based on their favorable position in the market. So just wrapping up, we talked a little bit about this, but what's the government doing in this? This has traditionally been a space where there's a fair amount of regulation and government regulation or incentives can really dramatically change the landscape. What are they kind of keeping their eye on, and is it a level playing field as far as the government's concerned? Well, this has been a huge year in terms of regulatory disruption, and that's part of the reason that investors are having a hard time thinking about where this industry is going. And without getting too arcane, the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, made a pretty meaningful decision uh, a couple months ago. They determined that they should be regulating broadband services the same way they've historically regulated monopoly voice phone services. And so that gives them a lot more leeway to look at the behavior of broadband network operators and potentially have greater influence in, in terms of how they deliver and price products to the consumers, although it's vague. And so investors look at that and they say, it would seem that cable companies should have a lot of choices for how they price their broadband networks to make sure they're being paid for the growing traffic that's going to be hitting them as people consume video over their, those networks. But what if the regulators don't like those pricing models? And it's genuinely ambiguous how regulators might treat that, particularly a future regulator. And there's already lawsuits that are flying around. And it seems quite clear that this is going to end up at the Supreme Court. And it's going to be a multi-year process before we figure it out. So there is a sense of a cloud over the space in terms of the regulatory view. Thank you, Drew, Brett. A very interesting theme. We'll keep an eye on it. Next time you can come back and explain why my uh, cable company wants me to have voice, TV, and broadband with them. But I think I'm kind of getting the answer. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. Thanks for listening. 
This podcast was recorded on October 23rd, 2015. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.